0: Good morning, everyone. Okay, good. Good. So before I forget, uh, because I have it written here, and Kyle just I think threatened me a little bit when he walked by, I'm um, um, to mention worship night again. It is coming up Friday, <laughs> seven o'clock. I was supposed to wear one of the worship night shirts this morning. I don't know if anyone else is weird like this. I have to wash shirts before I wear them. It's like they just don't. Anyone else like that? Yeah. Okay. And I'm not. I'm not like a germaphobe or anything. It's like things just don't like like fit right until you wash them? It's, all right. Oh, anyways, that's enough about me. So um, we are in 1 Corinthians. If you have never been to this church before, what we do is we work through whole books of the Bible. And sometimes ask, uh, people ask, why do we do that? And, and there's several reasons. One is because unless you work through a whole book of the Bible, uh, you can easily take things out of context. So the Bible is a collection of books, Right. It's not one book, it's 66 books that are put together to make a Bible, right, a a, a collection, a library. And um, just like any book you buy, you wouldn't buy a novel and start on chapter 7 because you wouldn't know the context of the novel. You wouldn't know the characters or what the plot is. It just makes sense, right? It's illogical to start a novel in the middle or towards the end. Just like when one picks up the Bible, it is illogical and it is easily taken out of context when we don't do the entire book in order, right? So we're working through a particularly interesting book. So the reason, the first reason why we do it the way we do it is one is context. The second reason why we work line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through through whole books of the Bible is it makes the hard truths and hard lessons inescapable. We have to cover them, right? We can't skip over the difficult parts. We have to talk about and digest the difficult parts. So the book of 1 Corinthians, written from Paul to a church in southern Greece, uh, deals with a lot of those hard principles. And as we get into chapter six today, we're going to be talking about a chapter that, that, quite frankly, and I don't mean this in any joking way whatsoever, every single one of us in this room has fallen victim prey. We have, we have uh, done the things that this chapter is going to talk about, all of us in this room. And Paul is going to address some very hard things and some things that we have to be very honest about. And so as we get into this chapter today, and I'll kind of tell you where we're going to land here in a second, um, we pride ourselves, this church, of, of being a very straightforward, honest group of people. And we have to be honest this morning. Today's stuff is hard, not hard to understand, hard to apply. It is difficult to apply. And we have to be honest and and say, listen, it doesn't make you less of a Christian to say it is sometimes difficult to be a Christian. It is sometimes difficult to do the right thing and to live righteously. That doesn't make you less than, right? We have to be honest. It is hard sometimes. Sacrifice, obedience, trust, these are hard things. That's what we're gonna be talking about today, though. Last week, we talked about church discipline, which is not an easy thing either. A short chapter, but a very hard-to-digest chapter. We asked, what do we know of sin, right? The only way we know of what is right and wrong is through the word of God. We'll talk about that a little bit today. And then we talked about what is the fruit we are producing. So if we call ourselves Christians, we should be producing things that, that give evidence that we are following Jesus. We talked about that last week. This week, we're gonna talk about this. Will we choose to sacrifice? Will we choose to obey? And will we choose to trust God with every single aspect of our life? This is not easy. This is difficult, okay? And we're just gonna be honest about that today. So you should have received a handout when you walked in. Has everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything will be on the screens. Everything is on the Experience Community app. If you don't have that yet, it's a really, really handy app. It's free and everything is on there. And if you're in service, notes and scripture and everything is on there. And uh, if you have a Bible... We're in the New Testament after the book of Romans. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we will be doing chapter six today. And um, again, guys, it's a tough one. Not because it's hard to understand. It's just gonna get all up in your personal space. All of us, it's gonna get all up in our personal space, all right? So let me pray, and uh, we will dive into this today, and I'll I'll do my best to, to teach this, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, I thank you so much for this church, Lord. I pray that you would just keep your hand on us, God. Lord, we need you to bless our church and to keep your hand on us. And Father, we don't just pray for our church, we pray for every single church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in in those cities, God. We pray, Lord, for the school systems that we are working with this month, God, in all three of those counties, that you would bless them, protect them, Lord, the principals, the teachers, the students, God. Lord, we pray that our church can be a blessing, to uh, the school systems around us, God, and just to our communities in general. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you uh, really expose our hearts today, God, that you help us to ask the hard questions, that you ask. That you uh, help us to be honest today. And um, I pray, Lord, that we can sacrifice, that we can obey, that we can trust you, Lord, because you are good and you want what's best for us. So, Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm gonna read a little bit. We will go back and we will break it down. So if you have not been here, what's fascinating about this book of the Bible, this was a letter written to to two Christians who had access to the word, access to good leadership, and they were saved, so they should have the Holy Spirit of God in them. But they have chosen to walk away from what they knew to be true, this, right? And they're resorting back to the ways of the world and all these problems are happening. Okay, so let's pick up in chapter six. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you and you unworthy, and are you unworthy to judge trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? how much more the matters of this life. So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those that have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother and that before unbelievers. So if you warn here for chapter five, in chapter five, Paul says something very, very interesting, that it is not the position of the Christian to judge outsiders, non-believers. That is God's place to judge outsiders. In the same vein, and on the flip side of that, therefore, logically speaking, it is not outsider's place to judge Christians. We should have wisdom, right? We should have maturity. We should be able to get together as believers in Jesus and resolve our disputes without having to take it to non-believers for them to make judgments about it. Now, keep in mind, when Paul was writing this, it was a little bit different than the culture we live in now. That is important to know. In Corinth in this time, they didn't have Christian judges. They didn't have uh, uh, Christian people in civic positions. And in areas like what we live in now, we do. To my knowledge, most of the judges in our town, we have one that comes to church here, are Christians. And so we have people in the civic realm that are believers that we can trust legal matters too. So it, it is a little bit different in our culture. But what Paul is talking about here is not necessarily about legal matters and lawsuits. The real problem with the church in Corinth was there was a lack of maturity and they were trusting non-believers more than they were trusting other believers. And because they were going back to the ways of the world and turning their back on the ways of God, they lacked the ability to discern, to make good decisions. So the bottom line is this. With the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance, along with the leadership of the church, Christians should be able to resolve trivial matters before having to take it to court. This is very, very simple stuff. If you're a Christian and I'm a Christian and we have a dispute and a disagreement, even if it's over some kind of business or legal matter, we should be able able to get together with the help of our church leadership and with the help of the guidance of the Spirit and resolve issues before it gets to lawsuits, before it gets to, to taking it to courts. That's what Paul is talking about. And so Paul says something very interesting. And I'm gonna let you guys do this study on your own because we don't have time to go into eschatology today. That means the study of end times. We don't have time to do that this morning. But Paul says, the saints will judge the world. To understand what that means, Matthew 19, Revelation 20, Daniel 7. If you wanna go back and research that. He also says, not only will Christians judge the world, we will judge angels. So that is sometimes misinterpreted to think that we can command angels on what to do. Paul's not even talking about angels in heaven, he's talking about fallen angels, which are demons, that we will hold authority over them in the afterlife. So here's the thing. His point here is simply this. God has made humans unique to all other creatures. You are unique to anything God has ever created. And because you are unique to all other things that God has created, there is a high standard for us. And so Paul is saying, if we cannot handle authority in this life, how can we possibly expect to inherit God's kingdom and have authority in the life after this? That's what Paul is saying. If we cannot resolve our petty squabbles now, why do we think we can inherit God's kingdom and handle that? That is his point here. We need to resolve our stuff here and now. So Paul was frustrated and he gets a little snappy here. He says, I say this to your shame because there are not enough people mature enough amongst the Christians to handle disputes amongst the Christians. He even says, is there not one of you? Is there not one of you mature enough in your faith to arbitrate between people who are having disputes, not one of you? And this goes back to the underlying problem of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And it's kind of the problem with Christianity today that the Christian community has started to rely more on the ways of the world than on the teachings of Scripture. This is the underlining problem. This is the thesis, if you will, of the book of 1 Corinthians. We are relying more on human wisdom than we are on the wisdom of God and the teachings of the Word of God. And so the reason why Paul was so upset about this is not only does it show how immature they are, not only will there be division and strife amongst Christians, when Christians have division and strife, right, and they take it into the public arena, this is very important, brothers and sisters, it hurts the reputation of the church and the outside world and it damages their ability to witness to non-believers. Listen, practically speaking, Your theological arguments on Facebook are a stupid forum to have your theological arguments. When we get on social media and we argue about, well, this church and that church, and did you hear about that person, what they did? And everyone knows that I'm more holy than them. I know you don't type that, but that's what you mean by tearing everyone else down, right? And pointing fingers. And you know what outsiders do? They look at this from a distance and go, man, they tell me Christianity is about love, but they seem to hate each other. I don't want any part of that, right? I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. So we would be wise to avoid public squabbles. Now, this is, this is crazy. I mean, try not to let the, you know, your brains get on the person next to you when I say this. What we can do as mature adults, especially Christian adults, is if there is some kind of a conflict with someone, you can take out your phone, and you know that does other things than social media and texting. You can actually call people on that thing. And you can call them and say, hey, I think we disagree on this. I have a novel idea. Can we talk about it? Can we get lunch? Right? Isn't that crazy? Thank you. Now you've learned. (laughs) Now you know that that phone does other things, right? But seriously, as mature followers of Jesus, instead of us taking our disputes out to the unbelieving world to judge us, exactly what the scripture says, why don't we just resolve it as mature followers of Jesus? That's Paul's point, okay? As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and you cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy, uh, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this but you are washed you are sanctified you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God now before we get into the different sin that he mentions this is a very very difficult one right here so not only are the improperly handled disputes a loss for the Christians listen look, you have to really look at what Paul is saying because you guys are arguing in the public square you've already, you're already losing. You're losing, Paul is saying. And then Paul takes it a step further and he says, wouldn't it just be better to, to be wronged, to be cheated, to be taken advantage of than to argue with your fellow believers? Think how countercultural that statement is. Just take it on the chin versus fighting back. And that honors God more. How do we know that honors God more? Because Jesus in Matthew chapter five said, if they hit one cheek, give him your other cheek. But Corey, that's crazy. That's Jesus. Jesus says, if they try to steal your shirt, give them your shoes. That's what Jesus said. Jesus says, if they ask you to walk a mile, walk two miles. That's what Jesus said. And so in our culture, it's the exact opposite, Right? but Paul is holding them to task. He's saying, if you claim to be a Christian, act like Jesus, act like Jesus, and it is better to be wronged. Well, Corey, I don't wanna be wrong. Jesus, the creator of all things, stood in the Sanhedrin, and they spoke lies after lies after lies about him. You know what it says he did in the book of Matthew? It says he remained silent, silent. He knew who he was. He knew what he was there to do, right? Listen. If you're in right standing with God, it it doesn't really matter what everyone else thinks about you and if you've been wronged or if you've been cheated, okay? It's gonna be okay. The problem goes back to, though, is we have to remember who we are. We have to be careful with this, this paragraph. The Christians in Corinth had forgotten a very, very basic fundamental doctrine, that there is a difference between Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers. Now, if you're a Christian here, that doesn't mean that God loves you more. It doesn't mean that you're better than anyone else, but there is a big difference between believers and non-believers. And the big difference is, if people are not following Jesus, they would be deemed unrighteous because they're not following a righteous God. And unrighteous people, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen, this is logic again. We're talking about a lot of logical things this morning. It is logical to say, someone would say, well, how dare you say I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of Jesus? Listen, logically speaking, if Jesus is walking this way and I am choosing to not follow him to his kingdom, there is no way for me to inherit something that I am not walking towards that's just logic, right? That's not a hateful thing to say. You will not inherit the kingdom of God because you're living in a way that says you have no desire to inherit the kingdom of God. God has this kingdom for you, but if you choose to walk this way, you are choosing to not inherit it. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So now the question again, logical question arises, what does it mean to be unrighteous? What constitutes unrighteousness? Well, fortunately for us, we have the word of God that tells us what is righteous and what is unrighteous, but who determines what is good and evil? So we live in a culture right now that's called moral relativism, which means you have your truth and I have my truth, right? So your truth may be that, that you own a 2007 silver RAV4 that's parked right back here. My truth is I have the title for this car, right? I drove it to work today, and so my truth is is that's my car. That's the truth. The problem with relative truth is they will always eventually contradict because after church today, right, when I walk out to that car and I have my keys and I, I go to put it in, you say, well, that's mine. Well, that doesn't work because this is the car that gets me to where I need to go. I bought it, Right? So relative truth contradicts. It is illogical at best. So if we step away from that, and logically speaking, there has to be a universal truth. There has to be some kind of standard. So then the question arises, who sets that standard? As Christians, if you claim to be a Christian in here, saying that we follow Jesus is us submitting to the fact that God sets the standard for what is righteous And what is unrighteous? This is important, listen, because all of us have done unrighteous things and we have to turn from them in order to inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul gives a 30,000 foot view of unrighteous ways we can live. He says sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, having an affair, cheating on your spouse, homosexual acts, theft, greed, being intoxicated, verbally abusive, and swindlers, that this will will prohibit you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, when Paul mentions these things, he he is not talking about people that occasionally fall to this sin. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about people who willingly and deliberately live a lifestyle contradictory to the teachings of the Bible, Because when I go back to that list, every single one of us in this room has fallen to one of those things. All of us have. But listen, it is one thing in a moment of weakness to steal a loaf of bread. It is another thing to have a lifestyle of being a thief. Those are two different things. So many Corinthians once lived lifestyles in those patterns. But Paul says you've been saved from that and you have been set free of that. The problem is is that they forgot that they had been forgiven. Not only forgiven, they had been sanctified, which means God intentionally set them apart to live a better life for his purposes. And not only set apart, they have been justified, which is a legal term. That means that because of Jesus' death on the cross, they can stand before God the judge as righteous, as innocent. They had forgotten those things, and they returned back to their former patterns, their former way of life. So here's the thing. We're talking honest today. Though we may still be tempted by that list, things on that list, though we may be tempted, and though we may even occasionally fall to some of the things on that list— We have to believe that we can be delivered from our sinful lifestyles. Why must must we believe that? Because that's the whole point of the gospel is that we can get off of a destructive path. We can be put on a righteous path that eventually inherits the kingdom of God. But how do we get there? We must know that it's going to be a sacrifice. Corey, I got a sacrifice Read the gospels and tell me about how much you have to sacrifice. Yes, we have to make a sacrifice because he sacrificed much for us. We have to be obedient to the word of God even if we don't fully understand why. Which leads to the last one. We have to trust that even though the decisions we have to make and the obedience and and the sacrifice, we have to trust that we're doing all this because God wants what's best for us, that he loves us and that he sees that if we go down our ways, it's not going to end well. He sees the whole picture. He loves us. He cares for us and we have to trust that. Listen, it's not always easy. We say, yeah, I trust God with everything. Well, what if God wants you to move to a foreign country? What if God wants you to get out of that relationship? What if God wants you to quit that job and do this? Well, then it gets a little bit more complicated, doesn't it? When we have to start giving up our desires for God's desires, it's not always easy, is it? Paul says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So the Corinthians were doing something that a lot of modern day Christians in the United States do today. They were using the grace of God as an excuse to live carelessly. Not only were they using it as an excuse to live carelessly, the Christians were using grace as an excuse to commit sinful acts. You know, Paul addresses this in another one of his letters. He says, should we sin more that grace abounds? Paul goes, absolutely not. How many Christian brothers and sisters do you know that when you call them out on, your, on their sin, they're just like, well, I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by grace. You know, you know what that does? Whenever we, we claim to be Christians and we still live in opposition to what Jesus says, what that is 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 that is not only taking the cross for granted, not only is it saying, hey, thanks, Jesus, for hanging up on that, on, that, on that tree for nine hours and bleeding to death for me, but I'm gonna do what I wanna do, right? Not only is it taking the cross for granted, it is antithetical to the teachings of the word of God Amen. to continue to do sinful things when we know that it's wrong. So Paul says something brilliant. Look at how practical and brilliant the Bible is here. Paul says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial for me to do. Which means we may have the right to do something, but that doesn't mean that it's a good thing to always do. I have the right to do this, but it's not wise for me to do it all the time. What does that mean? It's like drinking alcohol. Listen, you will not find any scripture in the Bible that says it's a sin to drink alcohol. There's nothing immoral about you having a glass of wine on a date with your wife or drinking a beer while you're watching the Super Bowl. There's nothing immoral about that. But... If you're drinking a beer next to someone who's only 30 days clean and they're struggling to be sober and you're a stumbling block, you're sinning. You are doing something wrong. Is it permissible? Yes, but is it wise and beneficial? Absolutely not. It's actually quite selfish, right? And it's not looking out for your brother and it breaks a slew of commands in the Bible to do this. Listen, you have every right to surf the internet at three o'clock in the morning, but if you struggle with porn, I don't advise it. It's not very wise To be surfing the internet at three o'clock in the morning when no one's around, right? Not very wise. Is it permissible? Yes. Is it beneficial? I don't think so. And this is not legalism. This is wisdom. This is wisdom. This is knowing that if I'm not careful, I'm going to fall over this cliff. This is wisdom. And so again, Paul goes on. I love this. He uses the analogy of food, right? Nothing wrong with food but food is made for the stomach and the stomach is made for food. What that means is these things are going to go away and we should not base our life around things that are not eternal. Like people's whole lives being based around a plant. We can just think of different plants, right? There's one in particular. (laughs) And people say, oh, no, 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 I'm not addicted. It's everything to you, right? It has become your everything. And what God is saying through Paul is that we should not live our lives for anything that is not eternal. And so the Corinthians were using it for sex. That's what they were using the argument for. Well, God created sex. God created sex. It's pleasurable. It's natural. So why should there be any limitations to it? And what ends up happening is, is when we think there are no limitations and parameters, we become a slave to our passions. We become a slave to our desires. And Paul says, listen, I'm not gonna be mastered by anything except for Jesus Christ. That's my only master, because the Bible says you cannot serve two masters, you cannot do it. And we end up becoming a slave to our desires. And the problem with this is there's a biblical principle that once we become Christians, we no longer belong to ourselves. Verse 15 says that we are a part of Christ's body once we give our life to Christ. And when we give it up, when we, listen, when we give up our physical bodies, right? When we give up our time, when we give up our energy, when we are more focused on other things other than Jesus. This is a very crass analogy, but it's, it's in the Bible, so we have to talk about it. Paul says, when we claim that Jesus is our husband, yet I spend more time doing this and following these other passions. He says it's like a married man who sleeps with a prostitute. That's what he says. You're having an affair, you're cheating, Right? That's why in the Old Testament, the Bible constantly uses this language of an adulterous people. It's not physically adulterous. It's being adulterous with your husband, God. So we're to avoid desires that are contrary to the teachings of God in the Bible, which means if we're wise, we will get as far away from our temptations as possible. This is very, very, very important. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against their own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought at a price, so glorify God with your body." Now, it seems like Paul is really picking on sexual sin. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, um, we all fall to it. And Paul was a human, and I bet he fell to it as well. When we talk about sexual sin, and whenever Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he said, it's wrong to commit adultery, and they're all like, well, we've never done that. And Jesus says, well, if you've ever lusted after another woman, you have, (laughs) oops, right? We're all there. And so maybe the reason why Paul keeps talking about sexual sin is he knows that all of us at one time or another have fallen to this sin. Another reason why Paul mentions sexual sin is because sexual sin is unique to all other sin because of its effect on us. It is sinning against our own body, which means the ramifications of sexual sin are are, are typically much greater than any other sin we can do. Think if you know someone who has been sexually abused. Not only does it take a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to help people get through that, it takes counseling, it takes Christian community. It will alter people for life if you've been sexually abused. Think about people who have been sexually promiscuous. They've had lots and lots of sexual partners. Think of the psychological effect of that. There was an article that the New York Times did a couple of years ago because there was this alarming rate of young porn stars, women who are committing suicide or dying of overdoses. Several a month, like high-profile porn actresses who are either killing themselves or overdosing, and almost all of them would get on their social media platforms and they would say things like, I'm worthless. I'm nothing, right? I'm numb. Because there is a very spiritual thing about sexual encounters. We live in a culture now that says it's just, it's, it's just casual, right? But there are great spiritual and psychological effects of this. And this is what Paul is talking about here. It is unique to all other sin. So what do we do? Paul actually says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, that's an easy one to remember. He says, don't just have a moderate distance from sin. He says, put a, a large gap between you. Have a radical separation between you and what you're tempted by. The problem is, is we often get prideful or we're just foolish and we flirt with things that we have a tendency to fall to. But if we will just put a distance, a great distance between us and our temptations, shockingly, we will struggle less or we may not even struggle at all. But what tends to happen is people will say, let's, let's talk about drinking again. The people say, man, you know, I'm trying to be sober. I'm trying to not drink. You know, I've gotten into all this trouble from drinking, but man, I went out with my girls at a bachelorette party. Everyone's getting wasted. and I don't know how it happened, Corey, but I got drunk and bad stuff took place. And I'm like, really, you don't know how it happened? My nine-year-old can tell you how it happened. (laughs) I mean, she's smart enough to understand that if you put yourself in compromising situations, you tend to get compromised. And so we just need to stay away from it. Again, am I anti you having a glass? Not at all. Not at all. I'll, I'll just, honesty, I do not personally drink because I was addicted to cocaine once upon a time. And so I do everything too much And so I know that it is not wise for me to drink. I don't care if you do it, if you can do it and not get intoxicated, but I know that I would struggle with that. That doesn't make me weak. That makes me wise. And so I stay away from those things, right? And so we are to honor God with our bodies. What we do with this body matters. And we strive to avoid sin because we should be not only in love with we should be radically devoted to the one that has saved our souls from eternal damnation. This is so important. Listen, we're not only saved by grace through faith, thank God that we are, we're also redeemed by the blood of Jesus, which means we are bought from our destructive ways. We're taken off a path of destruction and we are put on a path of good things, of righteousness. And in that knowledge of being redeemed, us knowing that we have been saved by grace, that we have been redeemed to do good things. Listen, we should want to live good lives. We should have a desire to live more of what Jesus wants us to live. And I'll tell you what's so sick about American Christian culture. We just want to make sure we don't go to hell. It's not about living holy or righteously. In fact, the culture of Christianity in the United States is we constantly argue and fight about how little we have to do for Jesus. Corey, are you saying I have to get baptized? I'm not saying you have to do anything. Do you love Jesus or not? Or Corey, are you saying I have to go to church? I'm not saying you have to do anything. But if you value the word of God and follow Jesus's commands and what the scripture says, like the church community is vital. Corey, are you saying I have to read the word of God? I'm not saying you have to do anything. But if you have a rudimentary understanding of what Christ has done for you, I would think you'd wanna know more about him, right? Right? And so there is this. there should be this desire in us if we understand what Jesus has done for us that we should want to live lives that honor him because ultimately we do not belong to us. Listen, you've not only been redeemed by a high cost, the son of God, you have been redeemed for a high calling. Amen. We're not just saved from hell, The Bible says we are saved to do good works that honor Jesus and bring others into a relationship with Jesus. When we get saved, it's not slapping on spiritual cruise control until Jesus comes back. That is not the Bible. That that is when we start to get to work because we are called to be stewards of a life that ultimately doesn't belong to us. Do you know something I'm really sick of hearing Christians say, it's my body? Technically, it's not. If you're a Christian, it's not. And the Bible says that multiple times. You have been bought at a price, right? That you are not your own anymore. You're a living sacrifice for Jesus, or at least we should be. But that takes a mature faith. It takes maturity to think like that. So let's be honest. If we claim to be Christians, if we claim to be following Jesus... There is no neutral in Christianity. There is either forwards and backwards. If we claim Christianity, we should constantly be maturing in how we think, in how we act. We should constantly be maturing in our faith, right? We should be growing closer and closer to him as time goes on. And if we are growing closer and closer to him, we will be able to handle disputes amongst each other. And not only amongst each other, we should be able to conduct ourselves in such a way outside of the church with non-believers, in a way that honors God and that we can be a good example. But again, this takes maturity. This takes getting to know God more and the word of God more. This takes prayer. This takes fasting. And so if we can do that, we will learn to handle disputes better. And the reason why this is so important, not only because we're supposed to have unity amongst each other, but the world is looking at you and I. And if we're constantly getting on Facebook and arguing about all kinds of stupid stuff that Christians argue about, and look what this church did, and look what that guy did, and look what she said, and blah, 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 and we're fighting with each other. The world sees this and they go, I do not want any part of that dysfunctional family, right? That's what they're seeing when they see us constantly fighting in the public square. The big thing about today, though, is sacrifice, obedience, and trust. Listen, salvation, deliverance, that we can be delivered from our sinful patterns, and spiritual maturity only come when we are willing to sacrifice our will for God's will. Listen, guys, that is hard. That means that God chooses where I live. God chooses the relationships I'm in. God chooses what I do with my life. Again, people are so quick to say, I'll do it. I'll make that sacrifice. Well, what if, what, if, what if your calling from God is like Paul's to be single for the rest of your life? Well, it gets a little bit more complicated, doesn't it? We're just being honest. So we are to sacrifice our will for God's. We must be willing to be obedient to his word. Even if we don't always understand, even if it contradicts how we feel at times. And then we have to trust that God knows what's best for us, that God has a better path for us, that though we, we see the moment, God steps back and he sees everything. And he says, look, if you wanna get here, you have to go these, these, these paths, right? I know this, listen to me, trust me. We have to learn to do that. It is not easy. It is not easy to exchange our desires for God's desires, but I can say this with a lot of confidence. That if we will submit to God, if we will trust him and say, Lord, I don't see where you're taking me, but I trust that it's somewhere good. God will not only change your life, he will alter your eternity and it'll be the best eternity. We, we can't even fathom yeah. how good our eternity is going to be, but we have to trust God. We have to trust God. Again, I will give it to you. That's not always easy. If we are also going to be holy and live righteous lives, we have to build parameters. Well, again, Corey, that sounds really, really legalistic that you would say there are parameters. It's like walking up to a fish in a bowl, right? And saying, oh, I can't believe that this fish has parameters. We need to set him free. And we take him out and we put him on the table and we say, there you go, man, nothing limits you. And he suffocates and dies because we're meant to have proper parameters. And when we think there are no parameters, that's why people get hurt. That's why people die. If we are to maintain a relationship with Jesus, if we are to grow in our faith and see other people's lives changed because of our witness, we must deliberately, intentionally distance ourselves from evil, distance ourselves from evil things. If you struggle with lust, even though it's not porn, don't watch you know, Baywatch. Maybe that's a bad idea, right? That's not, gonna, that's not gonna cause you to go in a righteous way. I'm not trying to like bust on Baywatch. I'm just saying, maybe I am. Anyways. (laughs) So this means we have to be humble and wise and discerning enough to admit, listen, to admit that I know I can fall if I'm not careful. Been a Christian for 20 years now. Been with my wife for 24 years, married for 17. But, but listen, I know that if I'm around the wrong things, I can make bad decisions. I know that if I constantly put myself in compromising situations, I might compromise. So I'm just not gonna put myself in those situations. I, but I have to be humble enough to admit, I can mess up. You can mess up too. That's wisdom. And it is discernment to know where I should be in places where I shouldn't be. We have to be humble enough to acknowledge that we can fall. So we sacrifice We obey, we trust, because if we claim to be Christians, listen, we should understand that God loves us so much that he has bought us for a price. Therefore, we no longer belong to ourselves. This means that no matter how hard that sacrifice is, oh, Corey, the sacrifice is hard, right? It's uncomfortable. So is having nine-inch nails driven through your wrists and hanging on a tree and bleeding to death. It's quite uncomfortable it is quite a sacrifice. It is a lot, right? And if we claim to follow Christ that set that example for us, we should be, and I'm, again, I'm not saying it's easy, but our hearts should be postured to where we say, God, if you gotta take it all, it's fine, take it. God, if you tell me to do whatever, I'm, 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 gonna, go the way, I'm gonna go the way you want me to go. Lord, you bought me for a price. Logic. Let's think logically. Why would God give up his only son just to take you someplace bad? It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Jesus went through everything he went through because he loves you, not because he hates you, not because he wants bad things for your life or destruction or chaos. He wants to save you from that. Here is the problem, though. Listen to me, please. Everything we have talked about today, you will hear the exact opposite, when you go back out into the world. When you turn on your radio onto the news, when you watch movies, when you listen to music, you will hear the exact opposite of what we have read in the scripture today. Because we live in a culture that teaches self over selflessness, excess over sacrifice, choice over submission, and feelings over truth. And and listen, in the middle of all these voices, in the middle of all of these things going on. And my Lord, I hope some of you are perceptive enough to see that this ideology is only, it's become the dumpster fire of all dumpster fires. It is a train wreck, not just in the United States, all over the world. This kind of ideology has not helped us, it has damaged us so much. And so, in the face of this, will we be countercultural enough? To say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. I don't always get it, God. I can't see the end right now, but I trust you. I'll make any sacrifices you want me to make. I will obey you even if I don't always feel it. I trust you. I trust you. He is the creator. He's the architect of it all. And we have to lean on the fact that God loves us so much that he gave his only son to die to buy us back from our sinful patterns. Will you bow your heads with me, please? (sighs) Hey, listen, if you are in this room, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you are curious, maybe you're looking, maybe you're digging for answers, If you want, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan, who handles our discipleship, who did announcements today, he is up here at the front of the stage. My right, your left. If you have any questions, we may not be able to answer everything, but maybe we can help you a little bit. If you have any questions, we're not afraid of questions. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, if you struggle with any of the things we talked about today, if you have done any of the things we talked about today and maybe you feel remorseful about that, if you wanna to talk to someone at the front of the stage, if you wanna have them pray with you, if you wanna pray with them, please, please come up. If you need prayer for anything, though, you can come up and let someone pray with you. The last thing is this. All the way around this room, where we see a lamp on a table, there's bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That communion is a reminder. Listen to me, as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, that communion is a reminder. How do I know I can trust God? I know I can trust God because God gave his only son. God sent his only son to be sacrificed for me. As the book of Romans says, that while I was still living in sin, Jesus died for me. And if we ask for God to forgive us this morning, we can take communion and we can take it in peace knowing that everything we've asked God to forgive us for is forgiven, it is gone. Never to be held against you again. If we will sacrifice, if we will obey and trust God, God has good things for us. God loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And you're welcome to take communion here in a moment. Father, Lord, we love you, God. Father, I pray blessings over everyone in this room, God. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to trust you more, God. We have all fallen short. We have all struggled, God, but you can deliver us of our sinful patterns, God. You forgive us of our sinful patterns, Lord. You can help us grow and mature and get closer to you, God, but we have to sacrifice. We have to obey, God. We have to trust you. So, Father, I pray that for all of us, Lord, that we can trust you more, that we can lean on you more, God. Keep your hand on everyone in this room, Lord, everyone watching uh, online, God. Keep your hand on us, God, until we meet again. And we pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.